This episode was previously recorded using our old podcast name. To find out more about why we decided to change our name, listen back to episode 32 entitled, Why We Changed Our Name. Hey friends, welcome to Kings and Queens, a podcast about the journey of faith. My name is Joseph, and in today's episode, I am joined by Sharifa Stevens and talking with her about women in ministry, how we've mishandled Bible verses and used them to oppress women, and how we as the church can reorient ourselves and learn to center women and do everything we can to see them flourish in the world. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Well, welcome back, friends. It is great to be with you all again. I am so excited to be talking with my new friend, Sharifa, today. We will get into this, but Sharifa has been such an amazing help to me as I've tried to grow and learn everything I can, specifically about womanist theology. And a few of her blog articles specifically really inspired and kind of kicked off that journey for me. So, I am thrilled that she was willing to sit down and talk with me. So Sharifa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Oh my goodness. What a joy. Uh, Before we get into today's conversation, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself and give us a sense of what it means to be Sharifa in this season of your life. Hmm. Okay, well... That's a vast question. So I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Um, I am a New York native that is a transplant here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm first-generation American. My family is originally from Jamaica, West Indies. and um, But I was born in, in New York and raised. I've been married for almost 15 years. 15 years. That's amazing. Yes. Yes. To a Renaissance man. And I have two rambunctious theologian boys. Mm. Um, Let's see. I think that's it. You know, I I like to write usually, but I I think I've just been in a, a cocoon of rest lately. And in a place of discovery because most of my writing is uh, catalyzed by anger. And I would like to figure out how to communicate um, effectively, not from a place of anger all the time. Although anger is wonderful, I don't shy away from it. So I think that's, that's me in a nutshell. Amazing. Well, thank you for sharing that. Today, we are talking about a big topic, one that is being talked about a lot, at least in the Twitter sphere that I am always in, and also just in the church at large, and especially in the last couple of years with some books coming out and a lot of conversation around toxic masculinity and patriarchy Mm -hmm. and all of those things. And there's so many different things that we could talk about when it comes to women in ministry. And I want to hear anything and everything that you have to say about it. But maybe let's start here. Tell us a little bit about your early days in and around the church. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you to exist in church spaces and do ministry and learn theology and kind of have these opportunities to practice your gifts specifically as a woman in the church kind of that you grew up in or maybe high school, college, those like early days for you? What was that like? Okay. Well, 
I think there were many layers to my spiritual formation in those in those early years. I had been attending church since I had memory, I guess. And my mother was really the one who ensured that I was in church every Sunday, even when she was working and would have to be at work at, say, 730 in the morning. I would go with her to work, sleep at the job, and then walk to the church in order to be there for 930 Sunday school. Um, so I was discipled by my mom into the primacy of being there on Sundays and not only being there, but being a part of the community, being catechized by the community. Um, even in her absence, they she trusted the community to care for me. And she was right because they did. Um, I went to wow. a Baptist church in Midtown Manhattan. And oh, man, I just love what um, that place, those people taught me about discipleship being really incarnational, just taking care of me, making sure I was okay, feeding me, um, not only with the scriptures, but also food, you know, pizza. Let's so, go. yes. Mm. So it was, it was holistic. We, I also lived with my grandmother and at one point, because we had other people, other relatives living with us, me and my grandma became roommates and I would watch her every morning and every evening have a time of prayer and um, scripture reading and hymn singing just by herself. Wow. Yes. Wow. And she, um, she attended a Pentecostal church. Uh, so I didn't get to go to church with her very often because we went to our own pipe organ, hymnal, red pew, <laughs> red carpet. Yep. Baptist church? Baptist through and through. Very, very Absolutely. much Absolutely. <laughs> very much Yes. So. But uh, she, she also taught me a consistency and a humility in worship that I don't, I don't think I saw anywhere else, you know, just watching her as, as an older woman get down on her knees twice a day um, in order to read, in order to pray, in order to sing. And she had <laughs> her voice, her singing voice was the sound of so many bleating sheep. So she really, wow. really, and she was hard of hearing. So um, she really had an unabashed worship and it was despite what what other people thought you know and so mm. it was it was very normal for me and only looking back now am I like wow that was just <laughs> so um forming it was so revolutionary because my grandmother's voice was the voice that you know people didn't clamor to hear right wow. so it wasn't she wasn't uh, the voice of authority or prominence or importance. And um, when she knelt by the bed and sung, it wasn't for anybody else. It was for her Lord only. And wow. I mean, like, that's an acceptable, it's just acceptable worship. It's the stuff that, that actually pulls heaven down to earth. And, yes. and I think that 
you know, just talking about women in ministry and and talking about it in terms of is this a thing that can happen? It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Yes. And it's all the time. It's always, yes. There, there are just too many women and girls who are filled with the spirit of God and are yes. gifted by God that will use those gifts. Now you can refuse them, but they're going to use them somewhere. So yes, like it's, it's a certain, there's a certain arrogance in posing um, the topic of not you, <laughs> but like, but like there's a certain yes, understandable. arrogance in saying, yes. oh, should they be? Well, um, what authority do you have over the spirit of God? Yes. To be absolutely. able to ask that question. So, so just to answer your question, at the same time, my mother, and I think to this day, my mom will say, hey, you know, if you ever see a woman on pulpit, you got to run. Women don't belong in the pulpit. And I hope I'm wrong. So maybe, maybe I'll have to ask my mom if she still believes that today. But yeah. that's in my early upbringing. That was the proper view. And so, you know, if, if a missionary woman wanted to, quote unquote, share with the congregation. Share the testimony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With her husband standing right beside it, her. And if she's a single woman, oof. then that's like kind of an announcement or like an update. It, yes. On, or let's meet in the fellowship it's not hall. Like, Yes. Afterwards. Exactly. Right. So yes. they'll remove the pulpit and then she could talk because, yes. the, and then the pulpit is the, the power symbol. Right. Yes. It's, which, which is so interesting because I don't, I don't see, do you remember where in the Bible the pulpit was? Yeah. Right next to the man of God. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> so Absolutely. What, what authority that symbol, I mean, I understand the sacredness of being able to communicate the word of God to sure. the people of God. And I don't want to make light of that, but there, there's some kind of interesting game that some of us try to play with pulpits or where people stand in order to diminish them. It's not, it's not ever to, to lift somebody up. It's just, you know, I need, I need you to know your place. It becomes. Yeah. It's almost a picture of like what, what happens in culture and what happens in the church. It's a very Mm -hmm. visible picture of exactly what we're talking about of like, know your place I got my Bible verse to support why I think this or why I say this. And you've talked about that before, as I mentioned, uh, specifically in your blog. And we'll link uh, Sharifa's blog in the show notes below so you can go click on it and go read all of the incredible work uh, that she's written. But in your blog, one of your fire blogs uh, titled Men of God Have Looked the Other Way Before, Mm -hmm. uh, you write this, quote, The most upsetting, betraying, anti-Christ part of this whole ugly chapter in U.S. current events has been watching representatives of Jesus Christ rapidly defend the rights of powerful men to victimize women, even twist the Bible to conform to their sins just so these men can occupy seats of power. You go on to write, rest assured that there will be a reckoning for the men of God who seek their own financial and political gain above justice for the vulnerable. And then you end with a call to repentance. 
Repent, you errant shepherds. Protect the flock instead of your wallet. Rescue the sheep instead of handing them over to ravenous wolves. Cast out those who would devour the flock or brace for your reckoning. I loved that. I know some people may not have liked that for various reasons, but those are some pretty hauntingly prophetic words and specifically for men in the church, for me. So I would love for you to speak more to that idea. And then the, well, let's start here. What are the problems you see facing the church as it relates to those ideas? Yeah, well, um, the the words that you read that I, I wrote, I wrote them in 2017. So I feel, yeah. I feel like time itself is proof, hmm. if you will, of um, what it is to reap a whirlwind, um, how you, and you see this um, in major denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention. And, but you, I think that the Trump presidency really helped to crystallize the unholy alliance that exists um, that excuses uh, the maltreatment of of women and yes protects rape culture as just something that happens but but really yes. it's for our good to consolidate mm. power because there there is nothing godly about the way Donald Trump went about his president is going about um, yes. uh, his political power. There's, there's no good news. There's no gospel adjacent message that is um, inherent in saying, you know, that you grab someone by the pussy and don't apologize right. for it. But you'll, you'll tell me that I'm being impolite for saying the word pussy though. So right. like, there's no, um, the the whole life ethic and the the idea of protecting women in a benevolent complementarian way um, goes by the wayside when you hear about forced hysterectomies of um, immigrant women who were fleeing their circumstances and looking for us yes you that's it flies in the face uh, so I, and the, those are just a couple of examples. There, there are so many. I feel like we have been um, battered by this awful relationship for yes. for years. But it, if it weren't for the insidious authoritarian patriarchy that is acceptable in our evangelical spaces, there wouldn't be a Donald Trump. Yes. This is, this is, uh, it's a product of generations of really a, a theological framework for yes. politics and sexuality and marriage and the nuclear family. And all of that is, and economics, part of an economics and housing. And all of those things are playing into this conversation about specifically women and even more specifically women in the church. And I think yes. you're right on that. We look at that and be like, oh, that's politics. We're talking about 
the Apostle Paul and these letters to Timothy. And it's like, you can't bifurcate these two things. No. They are intertwined in a way that's almost inseparable. Yes. Um, it's almost maddening to to try to have conversations around this idea because you have to, that's like the tip of the iceberg. Yes. And you literally have to go so far beneath the conversation about what does this verse or that verse say into what is the culture, what is the water that we're swimming in Mm -hmm. and moving on from there. It's also um, really advantageous to compartmentalize to, to say one thing is political, but one thing is ecclesiastical. Well, it, it, Sure, it would be if your politics were, I don't know how you have politics without people, and I don't know how you have people without politics. The two, yes. the two go together. Now, health-wise, health our politics should be in subjection to, to the Lord. And so, and I think that uh, my my evangelical brothers and sisters would say, yes, this is why we are pro-life. And this is, this is why we have, we back a conservative platform, but the conservative platform is also built on compartmentalizing people um, wow. and neighborhoods. And um, the, it's, it is not inherently Christian, although we would try to to uh, project Christian values on it, but there's the the whole the whole desire for limited government is so rooted in wanting to hoard um, whether it yes. is real estate, whether it's taxes and what's done with them, um, so it doesn't benefit the people who aren't me or people who aren't like me, um, whether it is a way to legalize school segregation so that my kids don't have to go to school with those kids. It's, it's all connected and it's, it's so vast that I don't even know where to break it down. Even, even the church planting decisions are based in uh, economic opportunity and economic viability rather than the gospel which is so sad yes so it's like oh well and and that's the thing like i cannot i can't i can't compartmentalize the whole issue of women in ministry um to one isolated issue because it's it's also a symptom of a way of life of people who maybe prefer authoritarianism and don't have a problem with hierarchy and then confuse this hierarchy and authoritarianism with the way of the kingdom. Jesus is king, yes. And what he does with his power immediately is says, he says, go, I've been given power. So now you go and you make disciples. All of these places, he immediately disperses his power. We, we, I I hesitate to say we, but some of my brothers and sisters take it as authoritarianism. Like I know best 
and you are the the miserable hordes who don't know best right. and the good news is i'm coming to make sure that order is established by any means necessary isn't that good news no yeah no so i don't know i to stay to stay on topic i'm in a place in my, in my faith where i have to hold up um doctrines and theology or theopraxis i should say um yes. to the light of jesus christ and see what is true and what is not because i don't i have a healthy suspicion of where i've been taught because the mm. fruit it looks like misery and bondage for many yes it looks like yes. subjugation for many in the name of Jesus, and it, it's, it, it looks too much like a colonizing force rather than a liberative force. Yes. It looks more like Rome and less like the kingdom of God. Hmm. So I, I, I respect people grappling with, what does it mean? I don't allow, I don't permit a woman to teach. Paul, you know, grapple with him. Yes. Yeah. He, he's hard because, you know, so many run on sentences. His his zeal is like on every page. And you could you could tell he's just talking, 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 talk like he's not easy, right? Um, and he is zealous, and you can see that. I think he's worth his words are worth grappling with because they're in the canon. But don't grapple with, in my opinion, do not grapple with those words outside of of the force of scripture as a whole. Yes. Do not grapple with Paul without grappling with Paul in in the book of Acts, establishing a church with a group of women, including Lydia. Yeah. Like, don't miss that because that's informing the letters too, right? Don't, but most of all, as Christians, with Christ in our name, please don't grapple with Paul outside of the lens of Jesus Christ. So like he is the light that by which I I'm able to view each facet, right? And I can't look at the life of Jesus. And I especially cannot look at the way he interacted with women and come away with some of the things that people who have never experienced marginalization, never experienced what it is to be isolated, uh, never experienced what it is to be powerless. I can't come away with his from his interactions with women and think the best way to be is to corral my sisters and say, you can cook, you can teach children, and that's that's the limit. Or, or even worse, like you exist to be under the headship of your father and the headship of your husband, and that's it. That's why you exist. And mm. let, let these two men tell you who you are. So I, I don't know. You know, like Joseph, I just, I'm looking at the, the longest 
um, discussion of theology and scripture in the gospels that Jesus had. And it's not with his disciples. It's, it's with the woman at the well. Why? Why in our inspired scripture would that be the longest conversation, right? Yeah. I'm looking at who who greeted him. It has to mean something. It's not an accident. It, listen, if we if we are if our hermeneutic is saying the Bible is inher- in inerrant and inspired, and we need to study it, well, what do you say of this length? What do you say? And so, what people do end up saying is they end up you know maligning the woman at the well and saying, well, she you know she had five husbands, so this is the problem. And that's not the problem. The problem is, is a lot of tragedy and poverty that led her. But she's such a woman of character that there were five men who were like, I will, I will help support you. But because there's nothing in the actual scripture that says you are condemned. Jesus right. didn't. So, so, so what we, we do is we, we um, malign the witness. Right. Right. And then ignore, ignore the, the, profundity of the passage, uh, the profundity of Jesus, who who really was keeping uh, his messiahship a secret, fully revealing himself to this woman, right. this Gentile woman, no, Samaritan, this Samaritan woman, right? So we, we just played that down, which he also mm. did with like Martha, with the first confession, you know, you're the, you're the Christ, you know, like we, we just played down these interactions we we malign the the witnesses and um and then we play up other passages right i'm i'm looking at jesus you you can look you can look at the passage in a vacuum go ahead i am looking at jesus he said that he is bringing good news and when he demonstrated that good news the people um whom he chose to demonstrate this with the people that he revealed himself to, the people that he revealed himself to, over and over again, they were not the elite. They were not the people who already had power. And so often they were women, so often. Mm. So how are you going to look at that, look at the life of Jesus, and then say, well, you know, Paul said, you know, the right that you know when, yeah I, unless it suits you yeah unless it keeps you at the top i mean if it keeps me at the top that's hella convenient right you have absolutely and, nothing to lose by upholding that that verse yes right nothing to lose except you know half the church but yep. you you have nothing to lose but the 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 spirits gifting in in all of those people that you've chosen to exclude yes and then you have you have the mess that you have because you're binding your own body. I just, I don't know. I used to be in a place where I would in good faith uh, talk about these things, but I, I just realized that most of the time I was talking with people who have no skin in the game. They don't have anything to lose. And it's just a fun, it's fun for them. It, it's a fun debate because yeah. they'll never know what it is to be bound. Wow. And so now I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm now I'm in this period where I'm just like, I don't, don't know where, where to, where to concentrate. 
you know, I think what I want to, I know what I want to do in part is just teach my sons, be a witness to my sons of really the, the meta uh, message, which is the goodness of, of Jesus Christ and how good the good news is. Yes. And if it's not good news for everybody, then it's not actually good news. Good news for some is not good news for all. That's right. And I think I think that's a great kind of segue into this idea of womanist theology. And in my DM to you, I think you said something along the lines of like, I'm an aspiring womanist yeah, theologian like or something no of that. I am no expert. I get I that, am but no expert. <laughs> I mean still want to hear from you <laughs> even if you don't consider yourself an expert I am not I I am not you know I was I went to a very conservative evangelical seminary my syllabus was so sad it was so malnourished oh mine I can guarantee you mine was way worse than yours <laughs> well you know I feel for both of us we we missed out and it's sad it really is sad I mean I I actually just DM'd somebody on Twitter the other day who said they took a systematic theology class with Dr. Cohn at Union. And I was like, bro, can you please send me the syllabus to right? that? And he he emailed me the syllabus and I was like, I can't even wrap my head around what it would have been like to be in a class with a syllabus and a teacher and a framework mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my goodness, dude. And then we like, we're kind of going back and forth. And he was like, it was even more amazing than you would have like thought it was. Yeah. But I think that that idea of womanist theology, I would love for you to maybe just do two things. One, kind of describe womanist theology as you understand it. And then two, share a little bit about how uh, womanist theology has shaped your view of the role of women in the church today. Well, as I understand it, womanist theology and the concept of womanism centers Black women um, specifically. Um, So theology is coming from a lens that expands um, from where we came from. Um, It expands um, to look at theology from the lens of the marginalized uh, mm. And black women are poised to to lead in this perspective yes. because of our intersectional relationship to race, mm. gender, and power, wow. sexuality uh, in in this culture, but really, you know, in the diaspora. Uh, so my the well of perspective and scholarship that I am drawing from right now, um, one of the things I most appreciate, no, several. One, I just am thirsty for the voices of people like me who are underrepresented in the institutions from which I came. And also they, they see and talk about things that are passed over in a more self-centered and many times like white supremacist view of God and and the Bible. 
And so, yes. you know, whereas in in some circles, if if we're talking about Abraham and Sarah, we're not really talking about Hagar and the awful things that Abraham and Sarah did. Um, we're or we're we're glossing over it. Like this is just, you know, something that happened on the way to the promise. Right. Yeah. So or um, wrestling with the tension of the problems with that story and how God is represented in that story. And that is a huge, it's huge point of tension and wrestling. And like, God is love. God is good. God sent Hagar back. <laughs> so, yeah, like, it's like, go back. What? <laughs> so, uh, yes. Dolores, please help us. <laughs> you know what I'm like? So, so how many times has that been glossed over? Right. But womanist theology does not gloss over these very real tensions and the ugliness that occurs and is inflicted upon people who maybe aren't at the center of the story. It's, it's looking, it's like a lens that goes past the, the protagonists, if you will and looks around. I just really appreciate that because a lot of times I feel like that's the only way we're seen just in this present day is if you just look around um, the loudest, most well-set-up voices. So that's how I would categorize womanist theology in my non-expert <laughs> perspective. Yeah. And I mean, that that has been for me a, and we talked about this before we started recording, but just a massive realization for me and my journey of faith and my journey of learning to do theology in a way that liberates all people and not just like spiritualizes mm. the story of Jesus into atonement theories and nuanced theological treatises from European men in power. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, the minute that I discovered what womanist theology was for me, I was like, this is what I want to devote my time and reading and energy to. Mm -hmm. And what has been really profound for me is, is the idea of like learning to, it is impossible, well, I'll back up. It is impossible for me being cishet, white, formally educated, middle class, married, father, mm -hmm. pastor. Mm -hmm. I mean, Christian, I don't know how many privileged identities I have, but I'm pretty sure I have all of them. <laughs> it is literally impossible for me to do good theology when it comes to the idea of liberation and justice and equity. If I am not centering and prioritizing the people who are not like me, mm -hmm. because though that is where we see the kingdom of God. Yes. And that's one thing that I'm even reading with uh, Kat Armas's book right now, Abolita Faith. That's what she talks about is the idea of like, maybe the greatest theologians that we have are people that we would never consider theologians. And yes. I'm like, yes, yes, that is what, like that is where the heart of God is. Yeah. That is where, like if we want a good tree that does not bear bad fruit, that has to be our starting place. Yes. And 
one thing that I'm I'm passionate about, and I talk about this a lot on this podcast, but I'm passionate about the idea of the future of Christianity in the West and specifically in the U.S. because this is my home, this is my people, this is my culture. And so I'd love to spend kind of the last little bit of our time talking about the future of women in ministry and specifically womanist theology. So I mentioned this before, but for most of our listeners, myself included, we grew up swimming in the waters of white evangelicalism and patriarchy and purity culture. And for me specifically, like a hyper complementarianism. Mm -hmm. And I think we would all agree, hopefully, that is not the way forward. But a lot of people may not have another way. That might be because of their experience or a verse here or there, or probably and most likely the struggle in this has more to do with this theological framework of patriarchy and heteronormativity that we were that we inherited from our tradition or our family or our parents or our churches. Not everybody mm-hmm. has has that, but a lot of us do. And Nicole and I are unapologetically egalitarian in our view of female elders and the role of women in the church and leadership and all of that. But for the sake of the question, let's say somebody doesn't hold to that theology, Mm -hmm. that maybe they're wrestling or they believe in male headship or whatever, essentially believe that women should not be in positions of certain areas of leadership in the church. My question for you is, A, what are your thoughts on that? And feel free to get spicy. And B, do you think it's possible to create a culture of equity and justice and liberation for women in that framework? (laughs) Yes or no? And if so, how do we do that? Because from my vantage point, and again, which I don't want to like, that's why I want to like center the voice of other people. I don't see how it's possible. I don't see how we continue to have a complementarian understanding of male headship in the church and then create a culture of equity, justice, and liberation for women. I th- I don't see how that's possible, but if there are ways that in your experience you have seen that play out or you think it's possible, um, I would love for you to help me and our listeners kind of think through what that looks like specifically when it comes to not just women in the church, but specifically women in like leadership of the church. Yeah. Well, um, you're not going to get spicy for me. I, I know, I'm sorry. I'll tell you that right now. There are just so many people I love who are all over this spectrum. They are just, and, and just as many who just are like, I don't, I don't have this conversation. It is not relevant for me. So I have people, and the reason why it's not is because like it's not a debate, you know. People, there are people who are in traditions who have the spirit of God, who love the Lord, who have never thought, oh, women should be excluded from all of these. They so they don't argue about it. It's just done. Yeah. So, and of course, there are people on the other other side of the spectrum who would never argue about it because they are so sure that um, since the serpent deceived Eve women there are just some things that women cannot do so mm-hmm. i guess there are just a bunch of us who are sitting in the some somewhere in the middle of that spectrum um whether we're still um arguing <laughs> or we're grappling with what we've inherited um whether we want to carry it on or or not 
I have an immense patience for that because it's such a tertiary issue. It is not a matter of orthodoxy. So I have a lot, a lot of patience for it, but I also am a woman. So I mean, like the, the way people distill and process this has a very direct impact on me and it, it can be very dangerous or exclusionary. So I, I hold that intention as well. Like my first priority is the safety of people in the house of God, the safety. Are there complementarian churches that can be safe places? <laughs> right. So, so I think, <laughs> I think that. I mean, you're saying it, not me. So I know. Like, yeah. So, so I believe that if, if there are men, this is really not a debate with women. Um, if, if, men are ultimately the leaders. If men are responsible for leading the church and are complementarian, if they are serious and dedicated to following Jesus, it looks like not paternalism kind of protection, but it means being vigilant against favoritism, vigilant against domestic abuse, vigilant against the hyper-sexualization of, of women and girls in the congregation. It means not having a, a lopsided ethic of sexuality. It, mm. it, it means training your boys not to be objectifiers, rapists, opportunists when it comes to uh, women and girls. It means uh, spiritual formation that is not domestic duty hmm. oriented for women and girls. Um, so it means it means equipping uh, women and girls outside of a servile capacity. And hmm. if they are doing these things with their male headship, you know, I think, I think that is, that's, that's really strong. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's really, it's still, it's flying in the face of a lot of status quo that totally that, you know, allows for um, the incubation of abuse as a way of piety for women. So if they're, if they're able to do those things in the name of Jesus, I don't know if they'll stay complimentary, but they, I, I just think that they'll they'll be doing right by the women and girls in, totally. in their conversation. And not only I'll also add that that their their leadership needs to actively have women uh, informing the the decisions that they make. There's nothing contra scripture that says that right. they cannot have the women who are consulting. And have a real say in church polity. They need to have, they need to make sure that they have women who are equipped to pastorally care for people in the church that, hmm. that they themselves cannot minister to. And so, you know, if, if they're comfortable doing all of those things, then... And I wish them well on 
on their point of view, because uh, I think what we, the our evangelical white brothers and sisters, but because sisters do uphold this hierarchy a lot, what they lack is a sense of humility a lot of times, and that informs a lot of arrogance from the pulpit and the pews. And humility, I feel like that uh, cannot breed systems of evil, a constant posture of humility. Just, yeah. it just can't. And I think just, just a, I am, I'm hopeful that we can continue to even examine what, how, how we design churches, how churches should function. We can re-examine our organizational charts. It doesn't, Yeah. the church is so fluid. I think there's so few mandates that the Bible expresses for the formation of a church on purpose, because we yeah. are living through different eras in different places. We don't have to be this way either. Like our yeah, the way we totally. make up church, it doesn't have to be the way it's currently run. It's not really a corporation. It's not. It's not meant to. Not to a lot of rules. Way. Yeah. And yeah. and there's not a lot. There's there's a lot of fluidity that comes with the spirit, and I feel like yes, that's the other part of this. You know, we can we can organize ourselves out of dependence on the spirit. And it, it, once the spirit has left the building, what are we doing? So I, I think that, you know, people are, and if leaders are dependent on the spirit, there's, there's, I have hope. I just, I have hope. Yeah. Um, but if we organize our way out of dependence on the spirit, hmm. we're, we are without, <laughs> we're without hope. We're just, yeah. Absolutely. We're definitely to be pitied. Right? For sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I know that was in reference to like the resurrection, but like it applies here as well. It I applies. Think. Yeah. You know, yeah. how how grievous is it that we would keep him, the spirit out of um how we how we treat other people um or how we relegate other people? Like we only do that when when we're our own idols you know that's that's when we when we do that yeah well i'll end here um what would you say to the woman listening right now who for whatever reason feels discouraged or disappointed or maybe even dissatisfied with the seat that they have or have not been given at the table because of silencing or complementarianism or fear or spiritual abuse or whatever the thing is, what encouragement would you give to someone listening right now who is experiencing those things in real time? Well, I, I would say, first of all, I'm, I'm really sorry, especially if there's abuse involved. First thing, remove yourself from that abuse you are still beloved of god um you are beloved of god right now where you are wherever you are and god i mean the good news for me 
was that God did not require me to be debased in order to be his follower. We, we don't, we shouldn't feel uh, abused or unsafe in the place, in God's house. I, if you're unsafe, please leave. God will not love you less. And there, there are places of refuge. I do believe in God's church. And I do believe that there are places of refuge. But God does not require your senseless abuse at the hands of people who are besmirching his name. I would also say that the, there's, there's plenty of good news in the Bible. Just look to Jesus. At the end of the day, look to him, look to Jesus, because when you, when you read the gospels, you see the way that he treated women. It is, it is a thing of beauty. It, it is, it is, it is revolutionary, but it's also really tender. And like, we might be bleeding out in these spaces and we reach out for him. He turns around and he calls his daughter. That's what he does. Wow. He won't, he won't despise us, even if some of our brothers and sisters do. Um, so, you know, I just visualize reaching out. The, I just love that story in particular because it was, it was so um, against cleanliness standards for her to be there. It was yes. such an act of courage and hope in the midst of so much disappointment for her to be there. And he, he recognized her and he didn't shame her. And he's, he calls her daughter and he doesn't really do that a lot. You don't see him calling people daughter or son in scripture a lot, or I don't, I don't know if anyone ever got that kind of, um, intimate moniker besides her. Hmm. But that's good news for us. Uh, that woman was at the hands of a lot of people who claimed to be able to help her and heal her. And they made it worse. And I think we can, there are a lot of us women out there who can relate to that. Um, just wanting to follow Jesus, just wanting to do the right thing. And being hurt over and over again, being relegated, being ignored, being um, isolated. And Jesus just doesn't do that. He's just not about that life. Over and over, over and over, from the time he was born to a woman, to the time he revealed himself as the risen savior to a woman. So just look. And all of us should be doing this. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If this is the dignity that he bestows, we should too. Well, yes and amen to that. I definitely feel like we could do a 45-part series <laughs> on this. But I also want to respect your time, especially in a quiet house right now. So um, that is valuable time. Uh, so I just want to honor you. Thank you so much for helping us and giving us language and a really helpful grid to process all of this and help us on our own journey of faith wherever we are. 
um, as we seek to be people who celebrate and value and look to women to help us better understand who God is and what love looks like in the world. Uh, you are such an incredible person, such an amazing help to us and the church at large. Uh, I'm so thankful for you and your wisdom. Uh, as we close, for listeners who want to stay up to date on what you're doing, what are some of the best ways to follow you or support you? Are there any like work or projects or anything that you want to shamelessly plug <laughs> as we close? Um, well, I'm very sporadically on the interwebs and on my website. So I'm working on that, um, being more, a, a more regular participant on the world wide web, but you can find me on Twitter, Instagram at, at Sharifa Wright. And I have a website called sharifastevens.com. I do not have anything to promote, but I will say that I'm excited. I just received Kat Armis's Abuelita Faith. Let's go. So I'm excited to read that. Um, she's brilliant. The Protagonistas is a brilliant um, program. I also want to uh, give honor to Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who yes. um, I wish she was a part of my syllabus in seminary, but she is now. Yes. And I am so grateful for her scholarship. And that's why I'm saying I'm not an expert, but I, but she is. So pick yep. up her books. Um, Dr. Changed my life. Right? Ugh. Yeah, woman is, woman is Midrash. Mm -hmm. I have never in my whole life read something that literally completely changed everything. Yes. Like you get books here or there that's like, oh, this was really helpful, but just a total reorientation. Yes. And I just, I go back to that book like all the time. I also literally just got notification that my copy of Woman's Lectionary hey. might be on, hey. might be on my porch hey. or at least is almost on my porch. So, so praise dope. the Lord Jesus. Yes. And also Dr. Gaffney. Yes. Uh, for changing so many of our lives. Um, Holy work. Well, yeah, amazing. We will be sure to link all of that in the show notes below. Thank you, Sharifa. Any other closing thoughts? Anything uh, you want to say as we end? Um, no, that's it. I mean, Jesus is my bungee cord. So he's holding on to me. <laughs> so I love that's, that. That's it. I love that. I love that. Well, uh, if this was your first time listening, uh, this podcast is hosted by me and my wife, Nicole. We are bivocational pastors and leaders in Spokane, Washington, and we keep this podcast sponsor and ad free as an act of justice. So if you're able to become a Patreon member and support the work we're doing, we'd love to invite you to do so by visiting our Patreon page below. This episode was written, produced, and edited by us, Joseph and Nicole with music from Miami Nights 1984 and Eric Godlow. Grace and peace to all of you. We love you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>